heard about a certain pastor who had some issues with his teeth. He, he had to have all of his teeth pulled. So he was struggling with the healing up of his gums and, and the new dentures. They just weren't fitting exactly right. And so there was just a lot of discomfort there for several weeks. The first Sunday he got up to preach after his new dentures, he could only preach for eight minutes because his, his gums were just hurting him so badly. And so he sat down and uh, the next Sunday he preached for 15 minutes. Things were just a little bit better. Uh, with his gums, and uh, things were starting to fit a little better, but still still uncomfortable. He, he just preached for 15 minutes. And the next week, though, he got up to preach, and he got on a roll. He preached for two hours and 48 minutes. And he just wore the people out. The elders, in fact, called for a meeting after the service was over, invited the preacher to come in, and they said to him, I don't know what in the world you or thinking, but you preached for two hours and 48 minutes. You can't be doing that. And the preacher was so apologetic to the elders. He said, guys, I made a terrible mistake this morning. I'm sorry. I, I mistakenly picked up my wife's dentures and I put them in and I couldn't shut up this morning. Ladies, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> Hope you had a good 4th of July. I heard that Gary Osborne got to spend some time with, with his grandkids on the 4th of July, and, and he wanted to test their knowledge on the United States. And so he asked them as a group to name for him all of the states so they, they started doing that. One said Kansas and another said Missouri and Arkansas and Colorado and Nebraska and Oklahoma. They, they were on a roll, but when they got to about 40 of them, they couldn't think of any more. And they were stumped. And, and so Gary commended them for getting 40, but he said to them, In my day, the students knew all the names of the states. And one of his grandkids said, yes, Grandpa, but in your day, there was only 13 states. <laughs> we better get to the text. We are in Mark chapter 11 today. And I have been telling you for quite some time that we were coming down to the last week of Jesus' life. And today we begin that stretch. And due to our time frame and when we want to begin our fall series, I'll not be able to cover every detail and every high point of that last week of Jesus' life, but I will try to hit most of the high points. And some of them I will bring together. And some of them I may refer to rather than spend an entire sermon on. But, but uh, we are at that point in Jesus' life. And, and it's during this last week of his life that we receive some of his greatest teaching. Today, we're looking at his teaching on prayer and faith. And in the weeks to come, we're going to look at his teaching on the second coming. We're going to look at his teaching on the two commandments of love, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. We're going to look at his teaching from John's gospel on the Holy Spirit and what he had to say 
about the comforter, the helper that would be given to us after his departure. And so I really want to encourage you over these weeks to come to be here and, and soak in some of this great teaching that Jesus had for us in these final days of his life. And of course, we are moving very quickly towards that time when he would give himself as a sacrifice for our sins. That's why he came to this earth. This was his purpose, and it was about to be fulfilled. The stage has been set. There is a great battle that is about to take place between the forces of evil and the forces of good, between God and Satan. And we know who's going to win, don't we? God's going to win. Jesus will pay the full price for sin through his shed blood. And on the third day, he will raise up from the dead to live again. And in doing so, he will crush the serpent's head. The crucifixion would be a bruise to his heel, according to the Old Testament prophecy. It would hurt him a lot. But the resurrection that would come would be a fatal blow to the serpent's head. It would crush his head. Death, which had always been Satan's ultimate trump card. He could use that on any and every person, and there's nothing that anyone could do about that. That trump card is about to be overcome through Jesus and his death and his resurrection. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says that Jesus would render the devil powerless who held in his hand the power of death. So this week, this last week of Jesus' life is a very significant time in history for mankind. And I am sure that all of heaven's eyes are fixed on Jesus as this week unfolds. It begins with the triumphal entry. He's been coming towards Jerusalem for quite some time. He has finally arrived and he is received with great praise and glory. And all of that is much deserved. Interesting to me, this is only the second event in Jesus' three-year ministry that all four gospel writers give attention to. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four write about the triumphal entry. Now, in this week to come, there are going to be other events that all four of them get in on. But to this point, three years, there's only been one other event that they have given full attention to. And you may remember that is the feeding of the 5,000. They wanted him to be king at that point, and he refused. And now here again. They want him to be their king. But he is going to refuse once again. He has not come to be an earthly king. But for a moment, he will enjoy the praises that the crowd was giving to him. Do you remember what they were shouting? Hosanna! And what does that mean? It means save now. Save us now, Lord. Save us right now from Rome's tyranny. Bring back the glory of Israel. That's what they were saying to Jesus as he went into the, the city of Jerusalem. Bring back the glory of David. Bring back the glory of Solomon's kingdom. Right now, Lord, save us. Their shouts of praise would turn to shouts of condemnation 
in just a few days. But right now, Jesus was enjoying, he was welcoming their praise. There was a group of people that was not enjoying this so much, though. And that was the Pharisees. They were unhappy about all the praise that was being given to Jesus. They said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered them, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. This day, this time, Jesus was getting the praise that he deserved, even if it was for the wrong reason. Mark chapter 11, verse 11 says that afterwards he went into the temple and he looked around and he left because it was already already late. So what's being said here is after he's entered into Jerusalem, after all of the celebration and all of the hoopla that the crowd gave to him, he got off of that donkey, he went into the temple and it was a late hour, there wasn't much happening there, he looked around and he left But the next morning, things are going to get stirred up in a hurry. He spent the night in Bethany, his disciples along with him, probably uh, at the house of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, their brother, uh, their sisters and a brother. And the next morning, he leaves their house. He and his disciples, they are heading back towards Jerusalem. And on the way, they see a fig tree with leaves on it. And he was hungry, so he goes to the fig tree to pick some fruit off of it. Let me read to you from Mark chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples were listening. We could call this the barren fig tree. One of the commentaries that I looked at said this about the fig tree. I want to read it to you. I quote, the time of year was Passover, the middle of the month of Nisan or the our month of April. In Palestine, fig trees produce crops of small edible buds, B-U-D-S, small edible buds in March, followed by the appearance of large green leaves in early April. This early green fruit, or the buds, was common food for local peasants. An absence of these buds, despite the tree's green foliage, promising their presence, indicated it would bear no fruit that year. Eventually, these buds dropped off when the normal crop of figs formed and ripened in late May and June, the fig season. Thus, it was reasonable for Jesus, shortly before Passover or mid-April, to expect to find something edible on that fig tree, even though it was not the season for figs. Now let me make sure that you're understanding what the commentary is saying because it's important that we understand this for the scripture's sake. A fig tree around the month of March would produce some buds. And these buds were actually edible. That's the food that Jesus was looking for. Following the buds, the the leaves would come onto the tree 
And this, this is all going to happen around uh, mid-April to May. And then as May comes to a close and June comes, then these buds fall off and the figs, the actual figs, take, take spot onto the tree. And that's the fruit that you're most familiar with about this tree. But Jesus and his disciples, they're leaving Bethany. They're heading towards Jerusalem. And he's hungry. He sees this fig tree in a distance. It has leaves on it, which in his mind and anybody else's mind would say, there should be some of these buds on the tree that are, that are edible. And so Jesus goes to pick some of these buds to some of this, this fruit for, for his breakfast And he finds that they are not there. The tree was barren. So, what's he do? He curses the tree. Now, some people want to get upset over this story. In fact, I read about one atheist. His name was Bertrand Russell. He lived a number of years ago. In fact, a hundred years ago or so. And uh, he is cited as one who is using this story as one of the reasons for why he didn't believe in Jesus. That Jesus would curse a fig tree when it wasn't the season for figs. Well, if he had read Mark Moore's book, he would have known that there, there should have been fruit on that tree. And besides that, the point Jesus was trying to make was more important than a barren fig tree. Well, what was the point? Again, referencing Mark Moore, he says this, It has the appearance of a fruit-bearing tree, but it is not. So Jesus curses this unproductive tree as he is about to curse this unproductive nation. Do you hear that last sentence? He's he's cursing the tree as an illustration or an example. He is about ready to curse the nation of Israel. And he uses the tree as an example. Should that strike a chord with us? Do you think that he might possibly be looking down upon us as a nation and seeing us as a barren fig tree in need of a divine curse? We'd be silly to think not. When he has poured forth upon us all of his blessings through these years, and he has given us his word, and he has given us his religious freedoms, and he has given to us the resources that we need to win the world to him, and yet we have dishonored him, and we have forsaken him for our own golden calf. I'm thinking, surely his curse is upon us. And if we don't repent, it's only a matter of time before his judgment comes down upon us like a hammer. If you read on in the text, you will find that the fig tree died immediately. Now, I have a point of application for us personally. Jesus expects fruit from us. Jesus expects fruit from us. Let me read to you from several passages of Scripture that that give evidence to that. Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 and 10 therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance this is john the baptist preaching 
bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And someone might say, well, that's John the Baptist preaching. That's not Jesus. Well, you look just a few chapters over and you hear Jesus seen or saying exactly the same thing. Let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 20. This is his Sermon on the Mount. He says, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, he says, you will know them by their fruit. Jesus expects for us to bear fruit. What exactly does that mean? It means that he expects us to grow spiritually. Can you help me with the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I have them listed for you on the screen. That's a direct quote from Galatians chapter 5. Nine character qualities that we are to be growing in, and we are to be reflecting the nature and character of Jesus. That's what he expects from us. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. He expects us to be growing spiritually. We are to be becoming more like Him. We are not to be barren of fruit, lest the axe come against us and chop us down. You know what else He expects us to be growing in? Not just character fruit. He expects us to be growing in people fruit. In other words, we are to be helping other people become Christians. That's what Jesus was getting at in in John chapter 15, verse 2. Let me read it to you. He says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch bears fruit cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, he says, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. An apple tree bears what? Apples. A peach tree bears peaches. And a Christian should be bearing Christians. More Christians and more Christians. We should be helping people become like the Savior and come to the Savior. He expects us to bear fruit. 
on this Monday of Passion Week, the fig tree was not the only thing that was barren. There was something else. There was the barren temple. And you can read the story in Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 17. And understand, this is the second time that Jesus has cleansed the temple. The first time was at the very beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2. You can turn back there and read about that incident. Now we're at the end of his ministry. He's going to cleanse the temple one more time. Apparently, they had not learned their lesson. The place of worship had become a marketplace where the religious elite were cheating and robbing the would-be worshipers. It was a racket for them. It was bringing them in all kinds of money. It was the Sadducees who were overseeing. They were administrating over the temple. They were over this scandalous affair. They were getting rich off of it. It worked something like this. Let's say, for instance, you were a, a person coming to Jerusalem... You're there for the Passover feast and you are to offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement for your sins. You could do that in one of two ways. You could bring with you a lamb for that sacrifice. And if you chose to bring your lamb, remember it had to be a lamb without spot or blemish. In other words... It had to be the very best of your flock. And it had to be a two-year-old lamb. So you bring your lamb with you. And in your mind, it's one that is without spot or blemish. And you go into the temple, your lamb had to pass a test. It had to be examined by the priest. Well, guess what? It never pass the test. It would never pass the test for anybody. And so you're, you're in a dilemma. You've brought your lamb. Your lamb's not passing the exam because the high priest is saying, oh, this isn't going to work. But let me tell you, I've got a lamb here that you can purchase and we can trade your lamb in for this lamb. And what happens, you trade your lamb in for their lamb and they charge you an exorbitant price for their lamb. They're getting deep into your pockets. They are cheating you. They are robbing you. So, you've got to make the sacrifice. You make the trade. You pay up. You give them your lamb. The fellow behind you comes. He's in the same boat. He's in the same dilemma. And uh, so when it comes time for him to make a trade for their lamb, guess what? They take your lamb and they give it to him because what lamb, what wasn't, it wasn't passing the test before. Now all of a sudden it passed the test. And so you see, everybody is getting cheated. And the priests are the ones who are doing this. All in the name of God the Father. Now, if you didn't bring a lamb and you brought money to buy a lamb, they're still going to get in your pocket because they're going to charge you an exorbitant price for that lamb that you're buying. 
They're going to get you one way or the other. And so you tell me, all of these people, they're coming into the temple. They're to make a sacrifice. It's to be a day of worship. And how do they feel inside? They're feeling cheated. They're feeling robbed. They're, they're mad and they're upset. They're, they're knowing that this isn't right. They can't do anything about it. What should have been a day of worship is everything but that. And, oh, by the way, if you come with Roman money in your hand, they're not accepting Roman money. It has to be Jewish money, and so they're going to get you in the exchange rate as well. They're getting you every which way you turn. That's what was going on in the temple, and Jesus saw it, and he knew what was going on, and he acted out of a holy zeal for his father's house. He went crazy on them in a godlike way. He turned over the tables and, and the chairs of the money tables, uh, the changers, and the money was scattered everywhere. Can you picture this in your mind? Jesus is going from one table to the next, and he's flipping it over, and coins are flying everywhere, and they're rolling across the temple floor. And people are scattering, and animals are scattering, sheep and oxen and, and, uh, and turtle doves. It was total and instant chaos. And this is what Jesus had to say. He said, I'll read, uh, here in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, it says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den? What was the temple barren of? It was barren of prayer. What was supposed to have been a place of prayer and worship had become a den of thieves. And I'm sure it broke the heart of God. It makes me think about this place. This place of worship today. Is it a place where prayer is promoted and practiced? It needs to be. Had somebody mentioned to me last Sunday how much it meant to them that we took the time in the service to pray twice for our CIY group, for the kids and for the sponsors, and and that God would give them safety and His blessing through all of the week, and that God would move in their lives and draw them to Him, and that those who were not saved would get saved. I wonder how much those prayers made a difference on Monday afternoon as several of our sponsors were involved in a accident. I have a picture of that vehicle. That's our church van. And I don't know if you had got wind through the week about this happening, but seven of our CIY sponsors were in this vehicle when they uh, another vehicle turned right in front of them and there was nothing that the driver could do except plow into that vehicle and there were no serious injuries, praise the Lord. But there were a lot of bumps and bruises and soreness in those days that followed. But it could have been so much worse. I wonder if our prayers on Sunday made a difference on Monday. You think? I think so. 
And we've seen a lot of prayers answered in our church family over this last year. I think back to Tim's cancer scare probably a year ago, you know, right this summer that that happened. And we prayed, and God worked a miracle in Tim's life and spared him of cancer. The same thing. I'm thinking God's grace and mercy granted to my wife, Cindy, uh, back in December when we were told that she had cancer and then... Then, then the cancer was, was contained and it was no longer there. And, and we give God the glory for that. It was God's answer to prayer. And, and His people's prayers made a difference. I'm thinking of, of Dean Irwin and Larry Paddock, who both have, have gone through cancer surgeries and, and they've come through that and they are recovering and they're doing better, praise the Lord. Our Prayers make a difference. We have prayed and God has answered. And, and we, we may ask this question, just how much difference does prayer make? Well, let me read to you Jesus' answer to that question. Mark chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. This is now Tuesday morning of Passion Week. It was Monday morning that he cursed the tree. They went into Jerusalem. He cleansed the temple. He taught in the temple for the day. They had gone home, back to Bethany, to Lazarus's house. Now it's Tuesday morning. They're going back into Jerusalem, and they pass this fig tree that's withered and Peter, verse 21, says to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Prayer does make a difference. Jesus said that prayer can move mountains. And I would dare say that if it can move mountains, then it can move lost people's hearts. It can make a difference in them, bringing them to a point of repentance so that those whom we are praying for who are lost, we'll see them get saved. We should be praying fervently for those who are lost. And if prayer can move mountains, then surely prayer can reach the hearts of those who have fallen away from Jesus. So we ought to be praying for those people regularly and fervently. Cindy and I both have people on our sides, each side of the family, who have turned away from Jesus. And we regularly pray for them to turn their hearts back to God. And we believe that our prayers will make a difference for those folks. And one day we will hear that they have come back to Jesus. So here's a question for you. If prayer can move mountains, what big mountains are you asking him to move? Hmm? 
What big mountains are you asking God to move? I'm not looking for you to raise your hand and give an answer, but I don't want you to let this question just pass in and out of your mind. He's wanting us to ask for big things from Him. And we need to be asking. I believe He's still in the mountain moving business. And I would love it if somebody, and in fact, several somebodies from our church would come to me and, and that they would, they would rise up and say that they want to be a prayer warrior and, and, and that they, along with others, want to lead a prayer movement among us. Would you be one of those people? that would help lead a prayer movement among us. You read through the pages of history and you read about the great revivals that have taken place in the church from from the book of Acts to, to Scotland to Ireland to England to the U.S. The revivals that have taken place, whatever revival it is that you point to, Every one of those revivals began with a prayer movement. We need more prayer warriors who would rally more prayer warriors. Who would rally more prayer warriors. And when that happens, I think we'll see mountains moved from here to there, and our church will come alive more than it has ever been alive before. A church that is barren of prayer is a church that will wither away. And we don't want that to be our story. We need more prayer warriors who are asking God to move some more mountains. We have seen a lot of mountains moved in our church's history, but we can't live in the past. We've got to live in the present and in the future, and we have some mountains yet to be moved. And I wonder if some of you would feel called by God to lead a prayer movement among us. Does that mean that God answers every prayer that we pray? That prayer is just like like a magic lamp that we rub it and, and we believe enough and ask God, then He's bound to do what we are asking for Him to do? No, that's not what it means. In fact, we've seen the truth of that just recently. As we have had a couple of people who were sick and and we were praying for them to get well and God didn't answer the prayer the way we were asking Him to answer it. Now, He did answer the prayer. They got well perfectly. They got a new body in heaven above. And so, don't say He didn't answer the prayer but I am saying He didn't answer it exactly the way we were asking Him to answer it. But he doesn't always do that. Because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are much higher than our thoughts. 
we have to understand we cannot put God in a box and, and have Him always do what we want Him to do. If, if that were the case, then who would be God? <laughs> we would be God. And He would be serving us. He would be simply doing what we want Him to do. And that isn't God. He will do what He wants to do. He is God. We are not God. And yes, his thoughts are much higher than our thoughts. His ways are much higher than our ways. And sometimes we cannot explain him. And sometimes we ask him to do this, and he says, no, I'm going to do this. And he, he will say to us, as he said to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to do things differently than how you ask. You just need to trust me. You need to hold on to me. Didn't we just sing a song about that a little bit ago? Amidst the storms, what am I going to do? I'm going to hold on to him. I'm going to trust him. And wherever he takes me, I'll go. And I'll praise him amidst the storm. And in the end, we know that however it turns out, we're going to be the winner. Now, we may not have an explanation for his ways until we get to heaven. And only then will we fully understand his plan. We've looked today at two things that are barren. We've looked at a barren tree that was void of fruit, and we've looked at a barren temple that was void of prayer. We do not want that to be our story. And so what are you going to do to keep that from being your story? I want to ask you to bow your head, to go to God in prayer, and just talk to Him about these things. Lord, I want to bear fruit. I don't want to I don't want to be a barren tree. Help me to bear fruit. And God forbid that this church be a church that is void of prayer. I want to pray. I want to be a part of a prayer movement. And God, would you please move mountains? among us and we will give you the praise and the glory and when things don't go exactly how we've asked for them to go we will praise you anyway because you are God and you are deserving of all our praise In Jesus' name.